Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. I'd love for you to turn there with me. We'll go to a different, few different places tonight in the text, but we're going to start out there tonight. Thank you so much for having me to Dalreda. I've really been looking forward to coming. I uh, love this church from a distance. Uh, know some of, some of the folks here and got to catch up with a few of you tonight before we started, but uh, it's so good to be with you. I appreciate Doug. Uh, Doug's an Auburn fan now, right? I know, I know that. Uh, Doug and I, he was saying we were in Walker County together, and um, I remember, uh, well, just like reminisce about stuff in Walker County with, with Doug and other folks that we knew there, but uh, we worked there in the same county together for a while, and and uh, appreciate him so much from the work that he's doing here at Dalreda and Montgomery, and I appreciate you guys. Uh, got to catch up with one of my one of my former elders, Ron Russell is uh, visiting here tonight as well. He was an elder at Hoover when I moved there 14 years ago, and, and uh, just a true blessing to me and my family. I wish I'd gotten to work under his oversight for longer than I did before he moved to Auburn several years ago, but uh, it's good to see him. And, of course, Billy and Shelby Camp. Um, Shelby's my sister's daughter, and so I love Billy and Shelby, and especially Kinley. They're uh, good, good, good folks. So I didn't get to see Kinley because she's sick tonight, but anyway... I uh, appreciate you guys. So it's going to be a day like today, you know. I came through some pretty bad rain on the way down a little bit ago. Uh, going to be raining. Going to be raining in some places. It's, it's going, to be, going to be dry in some places. Uh, it's going to, be, going to be dark time in the evening. It's going to be dark. Some places it's going to be, going to be bright, shining sun and others. It's going to be a day where, uh, where people go to a wedding and they smile as a beautiful young bride walks down the aisle and says, I do to a young man. It's going to be a day where a hearse carries the remains to a place of rest, at least here on earth for a while. It's going to be a day where mamas welcome Newborn babies into their lives, they, the hospital and just our youth and family minister, they had their little one just about, what, four days ago, three, Sunday morning early, so four days ago, whatever. Beautiful little baby, you know, baby boy, and um, mamas are going to be at hospitals, they're going to be bringing little ones home to bless their families. It's going to be a day like today, you know, good things happening, bad things happening, just a normal, normal day, if I read what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25, right? It's going to be a normal day where people are giving in marriage and people are being born and people are dying. It's just a normal day like today, you know? All of a sudden, there's not going to be any warning of this prior to it, but all of a sudden, Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, but he says, we're going to hear, we're going to hear some noises. We're going to hear the voice of Michael the archangel. I think probably what he's doing is commanding the host of angels under his authority. We're going to hear the trumpet of God, which I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. The trumpet of God that was blown back in the Old Testament and momentous occasions signifying this is a big deal, what's about to happen. We're going to hear the voice of Christ. Probably something like what, what he sounded like when he was at the tomb of Lazarus when he said, Lazarus, come forth! And hear the the voice of, of Jesus. Every eye, every eye will be directed upward. 
Revelation 1.7 says He comes with clouds. Uh, Acts chapter 1, when he, Jesus ascends in the presence of the apostles, you remember He was talking to them and then He ascended out of their sight and they're standing there looking up into heaven and the angels appear and say, what, what, are, you, what are you doing staring up into heaven? The same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. So He's going to come. We hear these sounds of just incredibly awesome moment when we realize that the world as we know it no longer exists. And Jesus Himself descends from heaven in the clouds. Matthew 25, uh, 31 through 46, one of the stories Jesus told that, that final week of His life, you know, when He's talking in that context, He's talking about the end. And he, he says that when the Son of Man comes and all the holy angels with Him, then He'll sit upon the throne of His glory and before Him shall be gathered all nations. So He comes, all His angels with Him. Can you imagine? I mean, isn't it incredible? Isn't it humbling? Isn't it a little bit terrifying to think about that moment? We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, one of the... You know, people get caught up in trying to predict when he's coming back, but the message of Scripture over and over again about the second coming of Jesus is we don't know when it's going to happen. There's not going to be any signs that let you know that this is, this is the day. You know, this is coming. It's, it's, it's imminent. So he's going to return. And, you know, you've got, you've got texts all over the place about this, but uh, he, he's going to sit up on that, that throne and he's going to be judged. You've, you've talked about a lot of aspects of Jesus' work over the course of your summer, you know, the summer series. I love the theme, and mine is to talk about Jesus as judge. And there's so many, so many texts, so many ways we could go with this lesson, but I want us to focus our attention for a little bit at least on Revelation 20, because, you know, I think this is a, a, a beautiful text. It's, a, it's an awesome text. It's a, depending on where you are in your spiritual journey tonight, it, it could be a little bit intimidating, a little bit humbling, a little bit frightening to think about what this day is going to be like. We're getting to the end of Scripture. I mean, you know, that, that narrative of Scripture that flows from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. If you look at that grand narrative of, of what God has been doing since the beginning, everything is good in Genesis 1 and 2, but the fall happened in Genesis 3, and the rest of the Bible story is about what God is doing to undo the effects of that fall in Genesis 3. And so that arc, that arc of the biblical narrative is, is pointing toward the end. And I love the way that story flows. You know, when you get to the end of it, and you got the, you got the conflict, you got the conflict between God and, and, as it were, what Satan is trying to do in the world. But, but the arc of that narrative points toward what's, what's coming. There's always a forward focus. History, history is, is not cyclical, but it's, it's forward. It's going in a forward direction, and it's pointing toward what God is going to do. It's pointing toward that final day. So when you come to Revelation 20, I want us to read this. If you would, just follow along. I'm going to read the last four or five verses of chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Listen to what John sees. I mean, this is, this is incredible, isn't it? All this conflict in the book of Revelation, all these battles and wars and, and, and creatures and all this stuff going on, but, but it's always moving forward. It's moving forward to this, this ultimate moment when, when God finally pronounces judgment on Rome and on the forces of evil. And I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, this, this image in Revelation 20 is, I don't think we have the words. In fact, I think John didn't quite have the words because I don't know that human language can express what he saw. You kind of get that impression when you read through the book of Revelation that John is trying to come up with words to express these incredible images that he's seeing and he's falling short, but he's painting this picture of an awesome scene a scene in which all are gathered before this great throne. I want to just kind of walk through this, this text and a few others and think about some things that we know about Jesus as judge. Here's, here's one thing we know. This comes through in our text here. He's going to judge all the nations. Jesus as judge is going to judge all the nations. Uh, God is not a tribal deity. He's not the God of Israel alone. God from the very beginning, of course, is the God, the only God, the one God, the Yahweh. He's the one who created the earth, and He's the one before whom everyone will stand. I mean, that, that came, comes through in the text here, doesn't it? Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. He says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. That text I referred to earlier in Matthew 25 uh, where, where Jesus says, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He'll, uh, then he'll be seated on His throne and before Him shall be gathered, remember this? Before Him shall be gathered all the nations. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy 4 when he says that He will judge the living and the dead. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, he'll judge the world. I mean, the Bible puts it in a whole bunch of different ways, but the essence of them is that God's going to judge everybody. You know, it's, we, we live in a, a world that's flawed in a lot of different ways. We live in a fallen world, and we have problems. And one of the, we have a judicial system in here in, in our country that I'm thankful for, but it's flawed. We have a system that people can escape justice at times if they have enough money or know the right people or, or whatever. Can escape, you know. But what Scripture teaches us about this judgment scene that we see in Revelation 20 and other places is that God's going to judge the world. Now, when I, when I preach on the judgment, it, it's always a little bit of a struggle because I think there are different responses to this, to this teaching. Probably there ought to be different responses. One of those responses ought to be, for some folks, it ought to be one of, I don't know what the right word is, fear or awe or... It ought to scare us if we're in a certain kind of relationship with God or not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But talk of judgment, I hope for, for the majority of you guys here tonight, that talk of judgment is not a scary thing. It's not... And we'll, we'll kind of go there at the end of this in a few minutes, but I want to make sure that, that we, we handle it in a way that's biblical and, and also that's fair. And, and I want you to respond to this, I hope, in the way that you need to, that, that, that I need to respond to this. But if there's anyone here tonight who thinks that you're not going to be judged, 
I want you to read these texts and be honest with them. We live in a world that doesn't like judgment. You know, this is, it's a, this is a kind of a non-PC thing to talk about, judgment, you know. We live in a world where almost the worst thing that you can be called is to be called judgmental. You go to Planet Fitness because it's a judgment-free zone, right? Uh, that's the kind of world we live in. You know, don't, don't judge me. Don't, don't you dare judge me. Just the, the very word of being a judge is just an awful thing to be. And so we don't like to talk about judgment. It's just not a, it's not a cool thing to talk about. It's not something that many people like to think about. But what we need to do, and I don't know how to get around this, you know, if we read, if we read Scripture, it's very, very clear that there is a coming day when God is going to judge the world. Every one of us will stand before Him in judgment. And if you are not ready for that moment, please hear the words of Jesus Christ when He says, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The message of judgment ought not be one that it scares us. So, you know, and I think of Judgment Day, and some of my, my, my images of judgment, I remember you know, hearing sermons on judgment when I was a kid growing up, and I remember just being overwhelmed by the, the scene of judgment. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I mean, I see, I read these texts, and I think of this just great, vast, innumerable host of people standing before God in judgment. There's crowds and crowds of people. And so we, we do know this. No one is going to miss that moment because of wealth or because of power or because of their family name or whatever thing that we might use to escape judgment in some scenes here. Here's the second idea. Jesus is judged. He's going to judge the world, but He's going to judge us. He's going to judge us not in groups, but as individuals. So He's going to judge people, individual people. He's going to judge individuals. There's this... uh, We see sometimes in passages like Revelation 20 where... You know, it, it emphasizes the people as a whole, the group of people. But then you have passages like Second Corinthians 5, where Paul says, we must all appear. Listen to this. You've got kind of both ideas here. For we must all appear before the judgment scene of Christ, seat of Christ, so that each one, listen to this language, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one may receive what is due for what he, for what she has done in the body, whether good or evil, will be judged as individuals. Uh, Doug, a minute ago, was talking about, you know, a bunch of preachers in my family, and several of you asked me about some of them before worship started, before our class started. And I'm thankful I'm, for what Doug's, you know, I'm thankful for the preachers in my family, extended family who are doing good in various places. I'm not going to be judged by my relationship to them, though, you know. I'm not going to be judged as a Webster or as a child of son of Charles and Judy Webster or a cousin of Alan or Wade Webster. Or... Be judged as an individual, you know. It's very important for us to recognize this, that God isn't going to take us as a family and that there, there, there can be, sometimes, especially if I'm talking to you, if you were you know, raised in a Christian family, raised in a family where you're always going to church, you know, always is a very important part of your life and all that. 
there's a tendency sometimes, I grew up in that kind of home, by the way, there's a tendency to kind of try to get in your parents' shadows and just kind of ride on their coattails, you know? That kind of, well, you know, i got issues, but my parents, I come from a very strong family. Let me, let me just urge you to, to recognize that if you're old enough to understand what I'm talking about tonight, then you need to understand that God is going to judge you. Jesus is going to judge you based on your relationship to Him, not based on the relationship that your parents or your significant other, or your, that your husband or that your wife or that your preacher, that your elders. Or... God, God is, He knows us as individuals. He doesn't lump us together in groups as far as the judgment scene is concerned. He'll judge the world. Everybody will be there, but He'll judge us individually. Notice also in Revelation 20, something He says, we're going to be judged according to what we've done. Jesus is going to judge us based on our works, based on the things that we've, we've done that came through in the 2 Corinthians passage as well, in 2 Corinthians 5. But here in Revelation 20, you know, He says, the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Verse 12, the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. According to what they've done. You know, the word work or works is kind of a bad word in religious circles sometimes. And maybe that's, maybe that's a response to some, some legalism in some religious circles because people have... Maybe in some circles there's been so much of an emphasis on works that it's kind of divorced it from faith and it's become more of a going through the motions, doing certain things and separated from what your heart is like and what you believe. And, and so maybe, maybe sometimes there's, there's been that needed correction to a legalistic approach to relationship to God that's based solely on what you do and don't do. Sometimes the pendulum swings in some religious circles where... It swings so far to the other extreme that in some religious circles, if you talk about works at all, then you are automatically a legalist. But I, I don't know how to read the, the Bible without walking away from it with the overwhelming sense that God is very, very concerned about what we do. I know He cares about our hearts. He cares tremendously about our hearts, our, our motivations. He cares about what we believe. He cares about... Why we do what we do, you know, he cares about the heart, and 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 I mean, he's he's very concerned about that, and, and we so we got to emphasize that. But at the same time, there's just too much in there where the Bible says God wants us to obey, and I think this this kind of dichotomy that we sometimes talk about with with faith and works and the tension there between them. I think if we went back to the New Testament and tried to talk about them, talk to them about faith being separated from works or works without faith or faith without works, kind of like what James says in James 2. They don't even have a category for that. If you believe, you will do. It's, it's, it's all together. If you believe, then you will act. And if you don't act, it's because you don't believe. And if you don't believe, then you won't, you know. I mean, it's this, this, these, these ideas are, are just together. And so I think that's why in judgment context, Revelation 20 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Timothy 4, any passage where it's talking about judgment, there's this clear emphasis on what you do. Not what you plan to do. Not what you 
thought about doing, but what you do. How your faith expressed itself in the things you do and the things you don't do. In Romans 2 talks about the secrets of men. God knows us. God knows us. He knows what we do. We can get away with stuff. People at church or family. People who are pretty close to us may never know about it. But God, God's very aware of our secrets, you know. And so in Revelation 20, um, John sees this image. And in that image, in that judgment scene, Jesus is looking and judging according to what we do. He will judge. Here's, here's a fourth idea. He will judge our works according to His Word. John 12, 48. The Word that I have spoken, the same will judge Him at the last day. Revelation 20, He says, you know, the books were opened. And another book was opened, the book of life. Judged by what's written in the books according to what they've done. Jesus says, we'll be judged according to what I've said. We'll be judged according to the Word of God. We're not going to be judged based on you know, what our parents believed or what our church taught, but only to the extent that what our parents believed and what our church taught was consistent with what the Word of God taught. And so it's just so crucial for us as, as, as individuals, as churches, to emphasize the importance of studying the Word and recognizing that God is going to judge us according to the way we live in conjunction with what His Word teaches. He, judges, he will judge us according to the Word. He will judge, he will judge fairly. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.8 says, When the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved His appearing. When we get to Judgment Day, God's going to render, Jesus is going to render this verdict, and that verdict is going to be, we're either accepted by Him or rejected by Him, and that, that verdict will be fair. We don't have to worry about God not knowing the full story. We don't have to wonder if God's going to get it right. You know, maybe He's going to be swayed by evidence that was stacked against us, and He's going to be unfairly swayed or whatever. We serve and will be judged by a righteous judge. He'll get it right. He'll get it right. And the judgment that He makes will be final. In, um, in our text, Revelation 20, there's all sorts of finality kind of emphases here. They're judged, each one of them, according to what they've done. Verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a final, this is a final moment. In Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about judgment and the, and the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne and all the nations, that's that text where He says, to some He will say, depart from Me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry and you didn't feed Me. I was thirsty you didn't give Me anything to drink. I was sick and in prison, naked and so on. And you didn't help Me. At the end of this, there's just this note of finality where, where, where Jesus, Jesus says, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but these into life eternal. This moment when judgment occurs, when Jesus makes His judgment, that is the last time. 
I wonder what it'll be like on that day, you know. I, don't, I really don't know how this is going to play out as far as the, there's going to be this time before we're judged, you know, this, these moments where we await our turn to be judged. I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but I wonder if there will be people there at that moment who are pleading, just give me one more chance. I got some things I I was going to do it. I was going to become a Christian. I was, I was going to come back to the Lord. I, I was going to just give me one, just give me one more chance. Just, just give me one more, one more chance. When he, he makes his judgment, it'll be final. Now I want to do this. I want to, I want to, I want to transition here. Because I think if I stopped here, I wouldn't have done what I need to do. I think this is a picture of judgment. I think that's what it's going to be like. I think those, those aspects about Jesus are, are true. But I think for the vast majority of this audience tonight, my guess is that Judgment Day will be the best day you've ever had. It'll be the best day you've ever had. I mean, you've lived, you're living right now, and you live every day because you can't wait to get to that moment. I mean, it's going to be awesome. And the reason it's going to be so wonderful is because Jesus has already taken your judgment. There's this text. I love this text in Galatians 3 where Paul is writing about some pretty complex stuff with some of these folks who were trying to bring back aspects of the law of Moses and make them points of fellowship. But in the, in the middle of that, he says, he goes back and he quotes this passage from Deuteronomy. And he says that Jesus, or he quotes this Deuteronomy text which says, cursed is the one who's hanged on a tree. Now, if you go back and you look at the context of where he's quoting from in Deuteronomy 21, what you'll find there is that it's talking about, it's talking about capital punishment. That's, that's the context. You go back and look at that, and it's a, it's a it's an amazing thing that what God is talking about in Deuteronomy is, here's what happens to you if you commit a capital crime under the law of Moses. This is what, you've committed a capital crime, you're going to be put to death, and what's going to happen is, after they put you to death, they're then going to take your body, and they're going to impale it on this pole, on this, on this tree, on this stake that's in the ground. They will impale, impale your body on that pole. And it's, it's this public display that this person has committed a capital crime and is therefore being punished by the state. He is receiving the consequences of his actions. He has committed something worthy of death, and he, we have put him to death, and we are putting his body on open display so that you might know what he's done. It's a, kind of a gruesome thing, quite honestly. But the thing about it is, what Paul says in Galatians 3 is that Jesus takes on that role for us. He says that, he says that Jesus, Jesus took upon himself the curse of God. Now, I don't think I understand all the implications of that, all the nuances of that, but I think God gives us some hints. When you go back and you look, you look at Matthew's account, you can look at most any of them, but Matthew's may be a little clearer than the others on this point. 
Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane that Thursday night. He separates himself from the disciples, goes away from Peter, James, and John, a stone's throw into the garden. And Jesus, I mean, I think, I think if you read the Gospel accounts, you'll agree with this, that, that Jesus basically, he, it's almost like he falls apart. I mean, he falls to the ground. He's praying. He's sweat. Luke tells us that his sweat is coming out as if it were great drops of blood. You know, he is, he is sweating, and perhaps the, the, the capillaries have burst into his sweat glands, and maybe blood's coming out of his skin. But, but Jesus is having this moment of emotional, just he's under great emotional duress, and he's praying, oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Comes back to the disciples, and I mean, he pleads with them, and he says, my soul is sorrowful, even unto death. And the language there, I think, suggests that Jesus is, he's saying something very close to, the, to this. I, I, I am about to die. I don't know if I'm going to make it out of the garden. I mean, he's got this, this moment where he is struggling mightily with what's happening to him. Hebrews tells us that he's crying. And then he, he goes. He makes it. He survives the garden and he's arrested that night and he endures the horrible things of that Thursday night throughout the night into the wee hours of Friday morning. He's taken before Annas and Caiaphas and then before Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate, the whole ordeal of, of that, just that, those treacherous hours. And, and finally, of course, he's scourged. He's just beaten mercilessly and robe put back on him. He's stripped naked. And then he carries the portion of the cross at least part of the way to the place of execution. And then while he's on the cross, I'm, stay with me because I want you to see, I want you to get, get a grip on, on what that moment really represents. He, he goes to the cross and about midday, you remember that the Bible says there was darkness over the face of the land. And, and, and when that happens, when it's divinely caused, I mean, their, their minds, at least those who knew the Exodus stories, their minds went back to that ninth plague when God sent darkness over the face of the land as an act of judgment against Pharaoh and his gods. Darkness symbolized that judgment is falling from a divine being on that which opposes him. So you've got this, this darkness over the face of the land about high noon when Jesus is being crucified. Then you've got the earthquake that comes and the veil of the temple is torn in two. So the earth beneath Jesus is convulsing. The sun refuses to shine above him. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting a verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think, I don't think we know fully as finite beings what that cry of dereliction meant for him. But I think we're, I think we're, we're at least dancing around the edges of this when we, when we realize that what's happening when Jesus is on the cross in conjunction with what Paul writes in Galatians 3, in verse 13, when he says that Jesus took upon Himself the curse of God, that it was at that moment when Jesus, through no guilt of His own, He having never committed a single sin, He was being treated as if He were 
a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what's happening when Jesus is hanging on the cross is that he is taking the judgment of a divine and holy and omnipotent and omnibenevolent God and he is receiving the brunt of that on his shoulders. He is being judged on our behalf. That's why, this is the most beautiful thing of all, that is why you and I, if we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we've been baptized into Him, we're walking We're walking in righteousness. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8.1. We don't have anything to fear. We're going to go to that scene of judgment, and, and God's not going to judge us for our sins because Jesus has already taken the judgment for our sins. And that's why, for the majority of folks in this room, it's going to be the greatest day of your life. I mean, you've been living for that day. It will be a moment, I don't, we can't even describe it, when God says, come you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because Jesus took your judgment. He bore that. He who knew no sin became as if he were. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He became as if He were a sinner so that we who are sinful might be regarded as if we had no sin. And that is the essence of the gospel. Is we don't fear Jesus as judge. We look forward to Jesus as Savior. But obviously, for people who aren't Christians who aren't in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This this day, and I believe that's why the Bible talks about it, because it wants us to know about it, that this day ought to cause us to pause and to evaluate our relationship to the Lord. Because there is nothing, there is nothing here that's worth having if it causes us to stand there or to cower there on that day and hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. There are some awful things to hear. Some of you have heard some pretty bad things from doctors, or judges, or police officers. On the phone, you've heard some things that have changed your life, some tragic, awful things. But there's nothing... There's nothing that is as bad as hearing Jesus himself say, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. There's a great day coming. Jesus is judge. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Depending on awesome, no matter how you define the word. It's going to be awesome in a positive sense for most of us, most people in this room. Because at some point in the past, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You were baptized into Him, and you've lived an imperfect life at one that's been characterized by faithfulness. You, you've tried to walk with the Lord, and God is so good and gracious, and He continually forgives us of our sins as we walk in the light. First John chapter 1. You know what a beautiful thing it is. There's no condemnation to those who are in 
Christ Jesus. But if you're not in a right relationship with him tonight, what is it, you know? What is it? What is there in this world that is worth having to the exclusion of a relationship with Jesus Christ? Let's, let's close with a prayer. Father, you have been so good to us. You have graciously given us your son. And Father, we're so thankful that he was judged. We're not thankful that he had to be judged. We're thankful that he was willing to, and you were willing to, take that judgment upon yourself so that we, even though we've sinned, can be regarded as if we had not. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for calling us to be a part of your people, for all that you've done for us and that you continue to do. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when we will hear you say, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We look forward to that. But Father, we also know that so many people won't hear those words. And we pray you'll give us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And we pray that you will make yourself known to them and that you'll draw them to yourself through Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for all you've done for us, Lord. We praise you. We give you all honor and glory. And thank you for being our God and our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much.